Hey there, this is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters. This is Rami Jaffe from Foo Fighters. This is Nate Mendel from the Foo Fighters. This is Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to Stuart Penny. Wow, hold on, major celebrity alert. I know what you're thinking. How did this guy manage to pull in the kind of guest that would normally be on Graham Norton or Saturday Night Live? When did Stu's podcast replace the red chair? Well, full disclosure, I get great guests. I've been doing this long enough to have friends in the right places. My dreams have come true on this podcast. However, other times, when I ask for an interview, they meet me halfway. I get what they call a generic interview. And it's exactly the same, except somebody else composes the questions. And we didn't really meet. So, yeah, it's it's not as cool. We didn't swap numbers and go for a beer. But hey... They did send me the contents of this interview, and it's still pretty exclusive. So, from my esteemed industry sources, enhanced by my sparkling personality and packaged in an expertly edited and produced podcast, here it is. Enjoy. Oh, and it may contain some uh, colourful language. Hey there, this is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters. This is Rami Jaffe from Foo Fighters. This is Nate Mendel from the Foo Fighters. This is Taylor Hawkins from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to Stuart Penny. There's no denying Foo Fighters are a household name. Nine albums, more singles than, frankly, I can be bothered to count, and they've been in our lives for over 26 years. I know, I feel ridiculously old all of a sudden, but you don't get to be on top for a quarter of a century without staying current. Foo Fighters, like other great bands who have stood the test of time, have a way of keeping their signature sound, but evolving, staying fresh, mutating into a new variant. Too soon? Yeah, probably. So, with album number 10, to mark a milestone, the Foo Fighters wanted to do something different. I thought that this record should be kind of an up, groove-oriented party album, Mostly because we had never done that before. And this being our 10th album, and 2020 was our 25th anniversary, I thought, you know, looking back on everything we'd done, we'd done like really like loud, fast, noisy, sort of heavy punk rock kind of stuff. We'd done like really gentle, orchestrated, acoustic stuff. And then kind of everything in between, like three or four minute long, mid-tempo, sugar-sweet pop rock songs and stuff like that. But we had never really focused on making something that was kind of like groovy. But, you know, I think all of us have grown up listening to bands, that rock bands that have albums that you can dance to. And, you know, whether it's David Bowie records or, you know, even stuff... Sly and the Family Stone sort of stuff, or Motown sort of stuff. You know, those are all bands playing music that you can dance to. I had never imagined us doing something like that. But I guess after being in the band for so long, um, you know, you want to do stuff that you haven't done before. And um, and in a weird way, it all of these songs came really naturally to us. I, I think that that's maybe the key to longevity, is just trying to... Do things that make it that, that make it so that you're still having fun and you're challenging yourself and you know um, just doing something that you haven't necessarily done before. 
And that is what they've done. A groovy, dance-orientated Foo Fighters album. That has not been done before. But I've definitely danced to a lot of Foo Fighters tracks in my time. Usually on my own, in the kitchen, wearing my pants. I really wish my nightclub going phase was soundtracked by the Foos. How cool would that have been? Kids these days, honestly, they've got it made. So, how do you go about creating a groovy Foo Fighters album? We didn't really write the album before we started making it. We went into the studio and kind of wrote it while we were recording it. So the songs were really kind of built from the ground up. And we did things that we wouldn't necessarily have done before. So someone would do a guitar part jokingly. Everyone would laugh. And then we'd say, well, we got to keep it. So it was more about just kind of having fun, I guess. I mean, or doing something that would take us by surprise. I mean, also, you know, we put a lot of thought into what we're doing, but I hate to spend too much time on anything because it kills the vibe. And so usually it's those little moments that if you actually get that little moment, you should probably keep it because of the way it felt the first time you heard it. So there was a lot of that. We had a little jam room uh, in the guest house of the house, and we would go in for as little as five or as many as 20 minutes and work on a song just enough to kind of sort of get to know it and then go, okay, let's go do it. Yeah, we've done pre-production pretty much on every record, which kind of gives you a, a starting point to follow through. But on this record, it was just bring it, just whatever you feel right there. We had been on the road down in South America, and I think that was like when he said we were going to make the album when we got back, and we kind of jumped back into it when we got back from that. And we were just in a, in a funky old house in Encino, and you know, it just kind of felt like you were going over to your friend's house every day to record a little bit, hanging out in the kitchen, drinking a lot of coffee. A little pressure. Eating a lot of bagels, you know. Not yeah. getting in the pool. Right, not getting in the pool, but uh, yeah, it felt, uh, it felt pretty stress-free, I think. How does that represent itself in the music? I don't know, because everybody calls it a party record, so I guess I, I've had so many people ask me, like, was it just like a party the whole time? And again, I don't want to disappoint anybody, but it wasn't, but I could, maybe a couple. Dave, Dave cooked a couple of briskets. It was nice. <laughs> what I wouldn't give to go around Dave's for a homemade brisket in the Grohl family kitchen. That's a party right there. So, when you're creating a new sound, a party album from a band that don't normally do a party album, what kind of reference points would you use? I always say it's kind of like a clock with the wheels in a clock. So there's like a big one that's kind of going like slow like this. And there's another one to the side that's like doing this. And like when they're all working together, it makes it tick. And so, um, you know, if, if you turn to Taylor and ask him a question about an arrangement or an ending or whatever, he's going to suggest something that's based on his love of Queen or the police or Genesis or whatever. Um, if you were to go to Nate, Nate would do something that was a little bit more esoteric or weird and angular. I don't know, it just kind of works. 
Bowie's Let's Dance kept coming up. I don't know who was saying it, you or Taylor, but um, that kind of feeling of almost 80s dance, you know, funky kind of record. And having Greg on board, which he goes nuts with like the keyboards and the synths. So um, I think maybe that's kind of took a little turn. Medicine at Midnight, all nine tracks of it, nine doses of melodic medicine, was produced by Greg Kirsten. Now, I'm not nerdy enough to know the names of many or any music producers at all, but this guy, he's won seven Grammys. It's not bad. Greg Kirsten is, without a doubt, the most talented musician I've ever met in my entire life. It's where he has an a deep understanding of music and an instrument more so than like anybody I know. And he's a multi-instrumentalist. And But again, he's one of those guys that like he was playing jazz when he was a kid, jazz piano, and then he got into punk rock, then he got into fucking reggae, and then he got into Brazilian music, and then he got into electronic music. And he's just like, he's he'll just like dive into something, deconstruct it, understand it, move on to the next thing without it being too complicated. Yeah, his taste is spot on. Uh, usually with a jazzer, someone who's just over-talented and can play anything, all kinds of styles of music, it gets a little you know, iffy when it's like, what does this song need you know, in a simple way? And he always just nails it. You're like, how did he just do that? But it's fun because you, know, you feel safe when you're working with them. I don't second guess anything that Greg does ever. I just go, okay. And um, and he's a friend, and that's you know that's to to me that's kind of the most important thing in our world is that we like keep it as unprofessional as we possibly can. But yes, Greg Kirsten is a motherfucking badass. I thought that he would be really detail oriented with his like breadth of musical knowledge and ex- experience making like these big pop records and it would just be all about this process and how to make this thing re- like very complicated and professional and he's more like I don't know let's figure out a way to fuck that up and you play something and he's like yeah that sounds that's that's pretty good I think you're good there uh, one of his ideas or if his idea is disagreed upon which very rarely he goes why well, sorry what do I know? <laughs> 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 kind of, you ever seen him do that, like, sort of, like, quiet stewing a little bit? You know? And he is so great, you know, to, like, you can just say, like, I kind of want to do that, like, Mick Jones, know your right slapback thing. He's like, knows exactly where to go and how to get it. And you always go in with, like, it, it, when we make these records, like, you've got the demo, you sort of have an idea of what you want to play, and you go in there, and it always gets banged into something else. And he's, you know, such a huge part of that. There was, you know, between him and Dave and whoever else happened to be in the on the couch, you know, you just you just sort of get through it, and um, it always winds up in some other place that you didn't think it was going to be, and better. All right, so the album is musically something new for Foo Fighters, but the Foo's are responsible for some of my favourite music videos. I don't think I'll ever forget the Learn to Fly video. Once you've seen Dave Grohl dressed as an air stewardess, you can't unsee Dave Grohl dressed as an air stewardess. You will not forget it. Anyway, the video for Shame Shame, like the song itself, is another direction, a new direction, for a new Foo Fighters era. The Shame Shame music video, uh, that idea came from a dream that I had when I was like 14 or 15 years old. 
I have, I have crazy dreams and I have my whole life and I remember my crazy dreams. And that was one of the dreams where I was standing at the bottom of this hill and there was a coffin on fire at the top of the hill. And I go running up to the coffin and I went to open it, but I was burning my hands. And, I was like, and I, my entire life, I was basically trying to like unravel that shit. I don't know what I was, I considered myself like a happy ki kid. And so when we did the song, I was listening to the lyrics and I just thought like, oh my God, this could, I could t take that dream idea. And so um, we have another friend, Paula Kodaki, who's a um, famous fashion photographer, like world renowned badass. So I explained the idea to her and we thought about having, um, Another person in the video that sort of represented shame. It's like climbing all over you and trying to pull you down and dragging you and trying to seduce you and shit like that. <clears throat> There's an actress named Sophia Butella who became famous dancing. But visually, she's incredibly beautiful and has this really striking, powerful presence about her. I was like, I think it should be her. I'd never met her before. I'd seen her in movies and stuff. I'm like, she's, that's, it should be her. We called her and she was into it. You know, she, I, she really made the video. She and Paula really turned it into something that was way more deep and dark and cinematic than anything we'd ever done. So that was kind of a game changer. Medicine at Midnight, like every Foo Fighters album before it, picking a favourite track is kind of impossible. Yeah, it's got dancey, groovy vibes, but there's still a really massive range in the kind of songs on this album. What I think feels like the most on-point and important track of our time is Waiting on a War. This really connects, and when the world is going through what it's going through right now, it kind of draws a parallel line back to a time when a previous generation basically felt the same. Some things never change. Waiting on a War was a song that we recorded maybe halfway through the making of the album. I hadn't written it for the album. I wrote it while we were making the record. And the reason why I wrote it was because, again, when I was young, I was terrified that there was going to be a war. I grew up in Virginia, just outside of Washington, DC. So I always thought, okay, if, there's, if there were to be a war, we were gonna be the first people to get it because we were like five miles from the Pentagon, you know? Like, we're the first to go. So I would have these dreams when I was a kid that like missiles were going up off over my backyard. And I know I thought I had a just happy childhood. <laughs> so, uh, but while we were making the record one day, I was taking my daughter Harper to school. She's 11 years old. And um, she said, Daddy, are we, are, is there gonna be a war? And I was like, what? what made you say that? And I guess she'd seen something on the news and I said, no, 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 there's not gonna be a war, don't worry. But then I realized like she's like living through the same anxiety I had when I was a kid. What a drag. Like really does every generation when you're that young think like, oh, well fuck it all. We're just gonna die in a fucking war. And um, it kind of broke my heart. I'm like, oh no, my happy little kid is afraid of that. So I wrote the song in like a day or two and I came to the studio and we banged it out super fast. In March, when things started getting shut down, we decided to hold everything and just wait. And we would talk about it. We would wait. And then after a month, say, okay, is it time? 
No, it's not time yet. Okay, and we would wait. Okay, is it time? Well, remember at first we thought, well, we'll wait till the fall. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just wait till this whole thing blows over. Yeah. <laughs> and then once you know, you start realizing like, okay, why do we make music? I mean, it's fun to do. Do we just make it so that we can go on tour? Like, do we just make records so that we can do that thing again where we go away for a year and a half and run around with instruments? Or do we do it because like, we actually like making records and um, no matter whether we're playing it on the stage or in a tiny room or not playing it at all, you know. Also, like, you know, Making albums, it's, it really is all about capturing a, a snapshot of a specific time or place or sound or whatever it is. So if too much time goes by, I don't know. There's, I started getting worried, like, I'm not even going to like this fucking album if it comes out in three years. But then also, if you make the music to be heard, just let it, people hear it. Fuck well, it. I mean, there there were we got a, nothing else to do. There were a series of Zoom calls, you know, as things were being canceled and postponed and pushed further off into the future. And at a certain point, Dave, you know, just felt like we have to put this thing out. We can't sit on it forever. And nobody knows. I mean, still, it's what January 2020. Nobody really knows when touring's coming back. Still, so at a certain point, you can't sit on it for too long. And we can still play the songs live. That's true. That doesn't go away. Three or four it, years from now, whatever exactly, that is, exactly. we still get to yeah. do that. Eventually. I'm really excited to play Shame Shame live, which we've been doing. Um, I'm also very excited to play No Son of Mine live. I'm excited to open the show with No Son of Mine. I'm also excited to play Waiting on War live. Mm, because I would imagine if people like it, They'll sing it too. And there's nothing like a bunch of people singing along to the song. And I think that's going to happen <clears throat> when. <laughs> yeah, give us the date. It happens. <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, I'm saying fall. Fall 2021. Oh, no summer. Yeah, thank you. Yes, please. I, I'm excited. I always like playing it, whatever, any of the new songs. But I like watching you pick the ones that work. Yeah. I always like, because we'll do some songs and I'll be like, oh my God, why aren't we doing this? It's so fun to play. And Dave's like, well, they don't like it. They don't, they don't care. So what's the point? I'm like, oh, but, but I really like playing it. Like, yeah, but they don't care. And okay. it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And it's not always the ones I think it is. Hold on. There are Foo Fighters songs that a crowd doesn't want to hear. What kind of crowd is this? Well, we're finally through the other side of this and live gigs are back when they're a thing and we're allowed to go back to gigs. You could play the Nokia ringtone to a room full of people and there'll be someone doing a crowd surf. Guaranteed. Bring it on. Dave says, fall 2021, Foo Fighters gig, later this year. You heard it here first. Maybe. Or later. Whenever it is. Let's imagine we're there now. Foo Fighters live. What are we going to get? At the next Foo Fighters gig. You know, I've always loved the connection that we have with the audience. And it's always been a priority of mine. Like, from the minute you come out on stage, uh, you, I want to engage the audience and let them know, like, yeah, we're here for two and a half hours, you know? I mean, the, ages ago, we wrote a song uh, for our second record 
that the tempo of the song was determined by jumping. Because that you go play European festivals and people like to go boing, 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 boing. And someone was like, what should the tempo be? And I, I just got up and started jumping like this. I was like, it should be that. You know, a song like Love Dies Young, the last song on the record. Um, that's the type of song that it's got that same tempo. And that will happen when we play it. So that's why I would like to put that on the record. And you know, the more songs over the years that you get, that you write and record and put on, the more of those that you have as time goes on, the longer your show gets. I mean, honestly, like right now we go out and we play for two and a half hours and there's 25 songs or whatever it is. People know pretty much every song. You know, 18 out of those 25 songs were singles. So we make a record and there, now there's five more songs that everybody knows every fucking word to and they bounce around. Now it's 29 songs. And you go see the show and you're like, oh my God, those people just fucking bounced around for three hours? Like, I want to be that band. What songs will we not play live on this album, do you think? In, in my honest opinion? Yeah. I think that uh, Holding Poison might not get as much attention as it deserves. It could be fun. And I think Chasing Birds will be for special occasions. Yeah. I think Making a Fire we will be doing. I think that Shame Shame will be doing. Sure. I think that Cloud Spotter we will be doing. Sure. I think that... Huh? I'm just... I'm for suring everyone you say. Waiting on a War. For sure. Medicine at Midnight won't Ooh. be top ten, but it, it'll be in there. That could go either way. Could go either way. We'll let the no son of mine decide. every fucking night. Yeah. That's going to be the first time on the set for a long time, I bet you. And then Love Dies Young is going to be a big festival song. Because Love Dies Young is going to be a single. Oh, Love Dies Young is most definitely a single. And if you don't jump up and down when you hear it, you probably don't have a soul. And more than anyone, you need this medicine at midnight medicine at midnight speaking of which why are we calling it medicine at midnight um i mean it's one of my favorite songs off the record um you got a guitar solo i got a guitar so well yeah i got a guitar song and you so got to kind of nod fun. to stevie ray Vaughan. yeah do a little it's an homage to stevie ray and, and that whole King. song is yeah. an homage to bowie it's kind of the most let's dancey thing on the album first of all this album was made pre-pandemic Right. We started making the record over a year ago. And we were like, 2020 is going to be a party, dude. We're going to like hit the road. We're going to rule the world. World tour. We're going to 25th anniversary, like the stadiums. It's going to be amazing. Um, so all the lyrics and everything and the artwork, the whole deal was done before the world shut down. I just like the idea. I liked the term medicine at midnight. One, because medicine is something that kind of represents like some sort of healing. And midnight, it, you know, it seems like it's the first and last hour of every day. But it also, like, it just seemed, I don't know, something about it that seemed like desperate or something. Are you taking medicine at midnight? You must be fucked. So, so there's something I, that I liked about it. Um, you know, in today's world, 
it can be maybe taken out of context. But shit, I wanted to call the album Love Dies Young at one point. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't do that. Medicine at Midnight, Foo Fighters album number 10. It's awesome. It's out now. You've heard them talking about it. Now go and enjoy it. I've been Stuart Pink on the Now You're Talking podcast. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you might like a few of the others too. Loads of guests from all walks of life, from rock star, hall of famers, movie stars, to community heroes and 104-year-old chicken farmers. They're all involved. And the best bit is this is a show where the guests really do speak for themselves. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Just search for Stuart Pink or Now You're Talking wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.